Welcome to the Olive Tree Church podcast channel. Whether you are listening in from our beloved Durban, South Africa, or from further away, we trust you feel welcome and included in what God is doing in our community, and that you feel inspired by today's message. Good morning, friends, and welcome to a brand new series, The Chosen. Uh, we're really excited about it uh, for all sorts of reasons, but for those of you who are a little aware of what's going on online, you might recognize that title. Uh, we've nicked it straight from a, a new TV show made about the life of Jesus. It's incredible. It's taking the world by storm. It's, it's hard not to just fall in love with Jesus all over again as you watch it. So we've loved watching it. We've all been crying unhealthy amounts while we've been watching it and feeling inspired and, and reconnected to our Savior. Uh, and so we're going to spend the next few weeks taking our cue from that sermon series. Uh, this year, we began by looking at the character of God, the mighty arm of God, the but God series, to build faith. And then we moved from that into talking about hope how to nurture and protect and grow the most valuable of human commodities in this strange new time. And then most recently, uh, we've been talking about grace, the idea that the backdrop before which all of your life should be taking place, all of your relating to this world and to God, should be this idea of his incredible mercy and unmerited favor towards you. Now, those are three pretty awesome sermon series to start a year with. Those are three massive building blocks for our faith. But now we want to tell some stories. So Nats and I are going to start this week, and we're just going to be telling stories like crazy for the the coming weeks. Because theology is great, but there is a person, there is a specific individual whose personality makes all this theology make sense. The carpenter's son from Nazareth, who also turned out to be God's son, the Prince of Heaven, Jesus himself. When we tell stories about him, we start to understand how all this theology actually makes sense. Um, One of my favorite authors, John Eldridge, he says that the greatest poverty on earth is the fact that we've lost the personality of Jesus. We might have some good theology about him, but we've lost his personality. You know, it's the church's job, it's always been the church's job to represent him to the world, to describe him to the world, to fall more deeply and more passionately in love with him ourselves, and then to invite others into that relationship. And when the church has failed to do that, when we make him confusing, when we make him remote, when we make him sanitized, when we make him blonde, for goodness sake, uh, what we end up doing is pitching something to the world that is not true. And that means that folks who genuinely are looking for adventure or purpose or true pleasure or true meaning or true healing or any of the glorious things that Jesus actually offers, when we give them some vanilla, watered-down, fake version of Jesus, we're coaching them that they should be going somewhere else to get those needs met instead of going to him. The big reason why stripping the personality of Jesus out of church and out of normal conversation in the world is such a poverty, according to John Eldred, is not just that we lose the treasure of going to him, but even more fundamentally, it's because if you lose your access to Jesus, he is the one who gives you access to all the other wonderful treasures of life. So not only if we don't really understand his personality, do we lose a great relationship with Jesus who will be the best part of your life, but also he is the one who then opens up all the other glorious parts of your life. And so for the next little while, as a church, we're going to pause with the sort of quote-unquote fancy theology, and we're just going to tell stories about this remarkable, magnetic confronting, confoundingly free, totally humorous, totally terrifyingly strong person called Jesus Christ. We recognize that theology without his person in the middle of it is just empty theory. 
We recognize that religion without his character in the center of it is just ritual. Community without his person in the middle of it is just book club, devotion, Bible reading, praying, all the other stuff that we're supposed to do as Christians without him as the goal and satisfier of all of it is just groupthink or self-help. And so Nats is going to begin the process of us just telling story after story about this magnificent man. And I'm trusting that you join us in finding your heart absolutely gripped by him once again, perhaps, hopefully, even for the first time as you come on this journey with us. Over to you, Nats. Thanks, Paul. Um, I have to say, you remind me, Paul reminds me a little bit of one of my kids who's kind of booked a story time that I don't know about. Um, but I'm not actually diving into story right now. What we really want to do through this series is to um, watch it with you and pull out real gems that we think will just enlarge the story to you and make it so much more valuable and help you to see the symbolism and the richness and the prophecies coming through all of it. So if you haven't um, watched the episode zero that we watched on Sunday night, um, we're going to show a little clip of that so that I can just start really taking us into the feeling of the day and, and how the people in this moment were feeling. It's so important for us to just take ourselves back there. Um, and we are going to be doing this as we go through this whole series. We understand that most of you will probably be binge-watching already or start binge-watching after this. Um, but we really are going to do our best to just pull out the nuggets that we think are so incredibly valuable to bring this story to life and to apply to where we are today. So won't you please just watch this first clip with me again, and then we'll talk a bit about what we find there. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up unto the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and he shall be their peace. A reading from the scroll of the prophet Micah. I just love that clip. And I think I'd like to draw our attention to one of the lines in the beginning of the clip where it says this. The prophecies whispered of a coming Messiah who would save God's people. I think one of the things we need to understand today from where we stand is that our idea of salvation, of what the people were waiting for a Messiah to save them from, is quite thin compared to what it really was. Um, for most of us watching, we don't really understand anything um, about the kind of oppression that the people then were living under and what they were really wanting to be saved from. So um, just to get a bit of a snapshot of the time and, and what it was like, we need to know that um, there was a Roman emperor at that stage called um, Caesar Augustus. And he had taken occupation over Israel and was crushing these people with taxes. Um, he was worshipped. He was considered to be a bringer of peace, 
to some people. Um, and he was really also known as a savior. Um, whenever his great deeds were proclaimed and celebrated, they would actually use the word euangelion. I don't think I'm probably saying that right. But what it actually meant was the good news or gospel. And um, because his father had been divinized, it was also appropriate that he be called a son of God. Um, not the son of the God, but this was um, a, a culture and a religion where they had many gods, and he was called a son of God. And so he might therefore have come across to many as a lot of what had been being waited for in the person of Jesus. Um, and yet what we do know is that there was very little, in fact, probably nothing that was kingdom of God about him. And so it's under this ruler that we find ourselves. And the Jewish pe um, people at that, at that time would have been paying huge crippling taxes to Caesar. They were paying other taxes to Herod, um, who had been placed in uh, ruling over Israel. And they were also um, probably paying the priests um, and the religious leaders in the synagogues. And so this was um, a group of people who were under cruel um, reign and um, a regime. They were left with absolutely no margin. They were working hard, um, trying to break out and, and hope for things to get better. And there was just no hope because they were being completely taxed to the hilt. Um, the guards would have been cruel. They were always under threat of threat and violence. And it was a horrible existence. They were seen as less than um, a very crushing way to live. And so when we are trying to get our heads around this, we could potentially think of the Jews of Germany or of native people to countries where, where people arrived and brought in oppressive um, rule, rulership over them or um, tried to push them away and out of land and, and things just going terribly unfairly. Um, or we could think of our modern day Syrian refugees and, and refugees from many parts of the world who would rather risk drowning or being locked up at borders or even being killed to get away from cruel leaderships and dictatorships and um, horrible oppressors. So we, many of us watching today, struggle to imagine that part of the saving that this people group was actually hopeful for in the Messiah, in their Savior. But what we also need to see from this uh, part of episode naught and uh, what it also points us to is that it wasn't only the oppressorship, it's the salvation and the saving that we are far more aware of. It's the saving of ourselves, it's the saving of our sin, um, the, the, us wanting to be rescued and redeemed and restored back into closeness with our king. That was the other part of it. So it was the salvation from the rule over the land and there was salvation from ourselves and from our sin and from our understanding that we needed to be close to our Father. And so then we get drawn into the fact that this was taking place um, in Bethlehem. And that is important for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, Bethlehem, Bethlehem means the house of bread. And we know that Jesus was called the bread of life. So that has significance. And then there's also the fact that there were many prophecies that had pointed to the fact that our Savior would come from Bethlehem. And so these people were well aware of that. They would have, uh, many of them, been expecting for him to arrive right there in front of them on their doorstep. Um, and the third thing to point our attention to um, around the salvation that we're more aware of is this. 
that this region was a very sacred region. It was a place called Migdal Ida, um, also known as the Tower of the Flock. And um, whilst there were sheep and shepherds and flocks and livestock all over um, the nation, this area between Jerusalem and Bethlehem was significant. Um, it was the place where they believed that the livestock there was sacred and holy and set apart. Um, and the firstborn males of the flocks were automatically seen as sacrificial lambs and worthy to be taken into the temples and for sacrifices, for celebrations, for um, all of their temple feasts, and really often even to bring in peace. And so... These shepherds were not your run-of-the-mill shepherd. They were not doing this for profit or for produce. They were raising these sacrificial lambs for the sole purpose of them being used for sacrifice and for people to have these lambs to bring them into a state of being okay before God. Um, they scrutinized these creatures. They wanted them to be perfect and blemish-free from sunrise to sunset. Their entire world um, was focused on a spotless lamb. Um, and so, therefore, they were so much of who they were was just so ready and prepared for this perfect spotless lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And so we find these two salvations um, that were so desperately needed at this time, um, salvation from the horrible, oppressive rulership of the Romans and salvation in a way that we could never do for ourselves. That had to be either a spotless lamb or the son of God. And so in thinking about this, um, I am just so in awe of what this angelic visitation to these shepherds would have meant. Um, it meant so much more than what we, with our very thin understanding of salvation, can really get our, a grip on. These shepherds would have noticed this in the angelic announcement, that they were being pointed to the fact that this Messiah was going to be both king and priest that he would be both Christ and Lord, that he would be the Son of Man and the Son of God, that he would be the Saviour of humanity and the Shepherd of all who would come to know his voice. He would deliver and liberate them from the cruel oppressors of this worldly kingdom, and he would be the perfect sacrifice to bring them back into closeness with their God. On the one hand, a king, on the other hand, a priest, and yet he came as a baby. He would not come as a mighty ruler like many had been expecting, but as a humble servant. And not with worldly might and power, but with peace, justice, and mercy. And so as I thought about this and I contemplated what this moment meant to the shepherds, it's like I could hear the words of the song being sung, and I would like to share them with you. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and irrepining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Fall on your knees, O hear the angels' voices. 
Onatavan when Christ was born. And that is the message that these shepherds heard. It's absolutely staggering. I want to read it to you as we hear it in Scripture from Luke 2.11. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Let us watch this moment that had been so long awaited by the shepherds. What will you name him? Jesus. We will name him Jesus. I must go. People must know. People must know. People must know. shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I told you not to come back here. So where is it? Have you found a spotless lamb for sacrifice? Just amazing, isn't it? I love that little sneaky smile uh, at the end. Let's talk about the name that his parents decided to give him. Um, Mary and Joseph decide to call their son Jesus. Why? What's, what's in that? And it's always worth doing a little bit of like sleuth detective work when it comes to names in the Bible because um, names are just generally important, right? But God seems to quite enjoy hiding little sneaky clues in the names various people have uh, in the story of his love affair with mankind. Um, and so Jesus' name wasn't something arbitrary. It wasn't some sort of free state family you know, name that just got passed down that you have to name your firstborn son or whatever. In fact, 
Mary and Joseph had really the best possible reason for naming him that, and that is an angel came and told them, you're going to call him this. Uh, so Jesus, kind of the beginning of the christening process begins, uh, we can pick up the story in Luke 1, verse 30 to 31. It'll be on the screen behind me. Don't be afraid, Mary. That's the standard first line whenever a, um, an angel speaks to a person. Don't be afraid. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. Okay, so that's where we get the impression that um, God has actually named his son first and foremost. Now, I just hate to be a spoiler, but as perfectly well shot as the, um, the story we just saw from The Chosen is, uh, and I understand why they've done this, but the truth is those guys, when they were um, asking, the, the shepherds, when they were asking Mary, what are you going to call him? She wouldn't have said Jesus. That's not the name you'd have heard in ancient Israel. What you'd have heard is the Aramaic version of that word. We've got like a Latinized, Anglicized version of the name Yeshua. Yeshua, for reasons of complicated alphabet and uppercase and lowercase, ended up being in Latin something different, which is why we call him Jesus today. And that's fine. We're still talking about the same person. But a cool little clue gets lost uh, when we call him Jesus. His original Aramaic name, that pronunciation of his name, Yeshua, would have been a fascinating name for Jesus to grow up with. Uh, I grew up with the name Paul. Uh, and so in church circles, that's kind of a, well, I don't know, is it an advantage? It does sometimes start a cool kind of conversation. You know, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, kind of a big figure. And so it's a nice little dreadful Christian dating pickup line, right? Um, well, Jesus grew up with a much more intense version of that, Yeshua. We now would probably pronounce Joshua. I hope I'm not blowing your mind about what to call Jesus when you pray to him. But Joshua is a famous military leader from the Old Testament. What Joshua's name actually means is God who saves. And Joshua, as we know, if you're familiar with the story, is the military legend, the kind of courageous leader who gets Israel out of slavery, out of, well, not quite out of slavery, but out of wandering in, in their exodus and gets them into the promised land. He takes them into freedom. And from that time on, forever, Joshua's name, Yeshua, is synonymous with this idea of someone who takes you into freedom, not just because the most famous Joshua did that at the end of Exodus, but also because that's what the name actually means, Yeshua, God who saves. And so we've heard that there are these various different titles that Jesus could have been given. You already heard in the, you know, the prophet Micah saying you can call him this and that and the next thing, Prince of Peace. Um, we, we know that he has other names in the, in the Bible like Lamb of God um, and so on and so forth, but... Why did he end up with this name? Not Emmanuel, not Messiah, but Jesus. God is saying, he's already hidden it in the name of his son, that I am coming not just to be with you, certainly not to judge you, not to make your life more difficult, not to add even more requirements and standards. I'm coming to save you. I'm coming to rescue you. And so Jesus grew up with that name, which is cool. But that's not where the clues end. Okay, so Yeshua, God who saves, has a dad called Joseph. Also, a pretty famous um, name in, in that time, but there's a really famous Joseph from the Old Testament as well. And I just want you to start to get the links here. So Joseph in the Old Testament, the patriarch, has an angelic dream, ends up in Egypt, and then has one of his descendants, Yeshua, Joshua, get the people of God out of slavery and finally, once and for all, out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. Then New Testament Joseph has an angelic dream, ends up escaping to Egypt, and it's his descendant, his son, Yeshua, who's going to once and for all not just defeat earthly slavery and get his people into sort of geopolitical freedom, but get all people into absolute spiritual and perpetual freedom. 
Now that for me seems like quite a cool tie-up that God has gone and sort of sneakily put in there. So when that young, exhausted mother says to the shepherd, we're going to call him Yeshua, we're going to call him Jesus, those shepherds would have understood immediately, wow, they're going for the big name. They're going for the, you know, the most ultimate name that you can name your kid. God who saves. And because, as Nas was explaining to us, they are kind of primed to understand the sacrificial language of, of the lamb, they would have already been putting two and two together, that this is God who's come to be with us, and he's come to save us, and he's come to get us out of slavery, just like the descendant of the first Joseph, Yeshua, was able to get us out of slavery into freedom. This descendant of this new Joseph, Yeshua, is going to get us ultimately out of slavery and into freedom. Cool trivia. Okay, there's another little name link that I just want to draw, which is going to bring us into something quite beautiful at the end of this first storytelling. And we have to get a little sort of sketchy here. Um, I'm going to take you to the book of Matthew in a moment, and we're going to see that we're going to bump into a guy called Barabbas. You've probably heard of him. In just one of the versions of the telling, one of the Gospels, you'll see him referred to as Jesus Barabbas. So Matthew verse 27, verse 16 onwards, gives us the story of Barabbas. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So that little bracket's there. When you see that in your Bible, that's always a clue that you should go to the text notes. And the text notes will tell you that not every single manuscript has this, which is why not every single gospel and not every single version today has this. But it's quite possible, not perfectly certain, but quite possible, that this guy's first name was actually Jesus. What we do know absolutely for sure, though, is that his surname was Barabbas. And, uh, and he's in prison. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release? So let's just make sure we understand what's going on here. Jesus has been taken captive. Jesus, the Jesus, the Jesus we like, has been taken captive. There's another Jesus potentially in prison as well. His surname is Barabbas. Jesus' earthly surname would have been Bar-Joseph, because Bar just means father. Um, and so Jesus, the son of Joseph, is in prison, and Jesus, the son of Abbas, is in prison. Uh, and now they're trying to figure out who to release. So Pilate asks them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they all shout, we want, um, we want Jesus, we want Jesus Barabbas, we want Jesus Barabbas. Pilate is obviously struggling with his own internal conflict because he knows that Jesus called Christ is the one who's actually innocent. Okay, so this is cool for me. I want to explain to you why. Um, Barabbas actually means son of God. How strange. This evil, sinful dude, and he was. We know that he was probably guilty of some political killings, um, definitely a swindler and a kind of corrupt thief. He'd been involved in some illegal uprisings and should, you'd think, if names really matter, have some kind of name like, I don't know, uh, Judas, right? I mean, that's like what comes to mind. Like, he should have some name that's synonymous with other horrible people, Ahab, someone evil from the Bible. But instead, he's got this name, Yeshua, the Lord who saves, son of the Father. He's got like the perfect, the best possible name. He's got a legendary name. And then you get another Jesus, another Yeshua, who actually really, in truth, is the Son of God, in prison at the same time. And what ends up happening is that the one who should be released isn't released, and the one who's got no right to be released does get released. You know the injustice of this. You know how frustrating it is. I often read these kinds of stories, and this is why I'm enjoying the fact that the name clues got us to this, because I often read these stories in the Bible, and my default is to put myself in the shoes of the wrong character. See, I listen to the story of Pilate and the dreadful miscarriage of justice that took place where you've got this innocent, perfect man being falsely accused because of self-interest of the chief priests and so on. And then you've got this rotter there, and they happen to have the same name. The rotter even has this beautiful name, but he's a shocker. He shouldn't be released. And then Pilate 
you know, he's struggling and he's not sure what to do because actually he knows what's right, but he's also venal and wants to take the easiest political route and not annoy the people. And, and he ends up delivering up an innocent man to be killed. And I sometimes put myself in the shoes of Jesus in that scenario and think of all the times that you've suffered injustice, when your, um, when your rights have been ignored, right? When, you, you're, when the right of way in traffic gets ignored and someone pushes in front of you, when your right to good service gets ignored and the insurance company finds reasons that are ridiculous to not pay out what they should pay out, when, you're, when that sense of injustice happens to you, we're so used to putting ourselves in the position of the victim and we think, well, maybe like Jesus, I can try and be gracious. Sometimes I put myself in the position of Pilate in that story when I've got a conundrum and I'm feeling pressure from all these different sides and it seems like there's only lose-lose options. But friends, in the story of Jesus by Joseph and Jesus by Barabbas and the wrong one being released, you and I are Barabbas in that story. Absolutely. There's only one role you and I are fit to play in that story. And it's not the kind of struggling moral decider, pilot. It's certainly not the innocent victim, Jesus. It's the sinner who, in some insane trick of cosmic grace, have been given the name Son of God. Let me show you where I'm going with this. John 1 from verse 9 talking about Jesus arriving, says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You and I have the right to be called Barabbas correctly. You and I had absolutely no right to that. We were simple mortals. And the one who absolutely does have the right to be called the Son of God turns up and substitutes himself willingly at our court case, at our, at our moment of being ruled upon. When you're getting your sentence, you get given the right to be called the child of God. You get the surname Barabbas. That's it. That's done. It's finished. And then the genuine Yeshua, the one who comes to save, the one who actually does have the right to be called the Son of God, goes and dies in pain and humiliation. That's the story. That's what's in a name. That's what God is already starting to set the scene for. I'm coming to save you. And the way I'm going to save you is quite dreadful. The way I'm going to save you is by sacrificing myself. And in that process, as one Jesus gets substituted for another, as you get to hide in this unfair situation, you end up with the absolute right to, be get, to get called the child of God. Now, as we said a moment ago, you and I don't need to be told to fight for our rights. It, like, it comes out of us. In fact, generally, we need to be told to fight for them less, <laughs> just to calm the heck down. Like, everyone, just take a moment. Um, but we have this sort of outrage that comes up inside us when we feel like something is perverting our rights. What we've just been told is that because of what Yeshua bar Joseph did, you and I have the right, the inalienable right, to be called children of God. Not we have the opportunity if we behave well. Not we've got a, a little in if we take the moment and work really hard with it. Not we have been given the rule book and now if we can follow the rule book really, really closely, then maybe we can be called children of God. Just as long as you, you know, eat all your peas, say prayers at the right time, ensure that you keep your room clean, then maybe you get to stage. No, you just are. You are the children of God. You have that surname. You have that spiritual DNA. It's done. Now, what do you do when someone gets in the way of your rights? What do you do when someone 
tries to take your rights away from you. Well, you do whatever it takes. You do whatever it takes to get what is your right. And yet, you and I are the ones who consistently seem to be trying to remove our own rights from ourselves when it comes to this, aren't we? If there is some thinking in my mind that makes me feel like I am unworthy to be called the child of God, I should be as vus, I can't think of a better word, I should be as deliberate, as, as desperate to sort that out in myself as I would be in the real world if someone was trampling on my rights. If in myself some idea starts to emerge that makes me think that I don't have the right to be called the Son of God, or if someone else starts telling me something and filling my head with something that gives me the impression I don't have the right to be called a child of God, then Jesus has done it. You do absolutely have that right. And so for those who believe, he has given them the right to be called children of the Most High. We need to start, I think, taking that right a whole lot more seriously. And the way to take that right more seriously, the way to strengthen it, the way to, to reinforce it, the, the way to boot out wrong thinking, boot out wrong ways of believing, is simply to do what we're about to do for the next few weeks and stare and stare and stare at this incredible, magnetic, infuriating, free, humorous, specific, interested, adventurous, rugged man called Jesus, who is both the son of Joseph and also the son of the Most High. And as you do, and as you look at him, you will start to recognize that you are Barabbas properly in every sense of the word, that you have no right to, and yet you are absolutely a child of God because of what he did. And all you have to do is believe. I'd like to give you a moment now um, to prepare for this series with me uh, and to prepare your hearts, because we can watch stuff and have it beautifully presented to us. We can hear these old truths and recognize that they make sense. But sometimes, even when you recognize that something's true, it still takes a bit of work to believe. Not because it's not true, but because it's somehow counterintuitive. Right? To begin with, it took a lot of work to believe in the coronavirus, didn't it? We kind of knew that it was true, and yet because it's a bit invisible, because it's hard to get your head around, you sometimes have to work to believe it. There are other things that are just true and yet are hard to believe. You, I'm told, are made up of cells that are further apart from one another compared to the scale of them than the planets are in the universe. In other words, you are less dense than the universe. Now, that's just like incredibly difficult to get your head around, but apparently it's true. Sometimes things that are true are still difficult to believe, not because they're not true, but because they're so far out of our frame of reference. If you have the right, not the opportunity, but the right to be called the child of, child of God, that may take a bit of work to believe. And so we're going to tell Jesus stories. We're going to see why that's true. But I just want to pray with you now that we get our hearts ready to finally grab hold of that idea and then live in the light of that idea. Lord Jesus, you are described by the Apostle Paul as both the author and the perfecter of our faith. You showed us what it looks like to live believing these things. And these things are true because of the work you did. You both set it up and then lived it perfectly. And so whatever it is that we're longing for, whether it's healing, whether it's adventure, whether it's purpose, whether it's intimacy, whatever it might be, we know in our heads that you are the one that provides it. You are the best person to go to for it. And yet sometimes we've got to unlearn all sorts of old ways of thinking that make that hard to believe. Sometimes we think we don't have the right to get there. Sometimes we think you may hold out on us if we do get there. Oh, Jesus, by your Spirit, prepare our hearts right now for the rest of this series. 
that as we watch these TV shows, as we, as we have these conversations, as we discuss these scriptures, that you would turn our hearts into fertile soil. That the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith would then have a bunch of disciples following their rabbi, a bunch of, of youngsters following their older brother, a bunch of believers looking at their king and their God and recognizing that not only are you wonderful, but you can actually transform us. You can move us into living the way you lived. And we're desperate for that, especially now. Amen.